It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, July 12, 2021. I'm Kelly Reese and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. On tonight's California Report, state wildfire, drought, and pandemic updates. What's that they say? Prepare for the worst, hope for the best? Then, in National Native News, Roseanne Archibald has become the first woman elected to lead Canada's Assembly of First Nations. And the CDC COVID-19 data tracker says American Indians and Alaska Natives have the highest rate of vaccination in the country. We'll take a brief look at regional headlines and weather before closing tonight with Sid Brown's A Walk in the Park. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Governor Gavin Newsom has approved an extra half billion dollars for wildfire prevention. The change comes after Cap Radio and NPR's California Newsroom revealed Newsom's administration had nixed an earlier similar amount. Cap Radio's Scott Rod has more on the last-minute change. The additional $500 million more than doubles what was in the final budget deal between Newsom and state lawmakers. H.D. Palmer with the Department of Finance says the money will help with wildfire resiliency. It could be things such as fuel breaks, clean up on state-owned properties and restoration to make them less susceptible to potential fire conditions down the road. But there's a catch. The additional money will be allocated this year only if Newsom and the legislature decide it's necessary. That's led to criticism from some Republican lawmakers who represent fire-prone communities. Here's Assemblyman James Gallagher. We need continuous appropriation, meaning definite funding in the budget, allocated and able to expend, not just there at the whim of the governor's administration, who doesn't really have a great record on this stuff. Over 4 million acres burned in California last year. Most of the state is experiencing record heat and extreme drought, and several major fires have already broken out across the state. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. That story again is from Cap Radio. And for transparency's sake, we'll note that the budget bill includes state funding for Cap Radio's new performance space in downtown Sacramento. Last week, Governor Newsom extended the drought emergency in the state to 50 of California's 58 counties. He also asked that Californians voluntarily reduce their water usage by 15%, but he stopped short of issuing a mandate. The state is already working on some measures that officials hope will keep the water flowing during the dry summer months ahead. That includes a massive rock barrier through part of the Delta in Contra Costa County, which has recently been completed. The barrier is expected to help preserve water supplies for millions of Californians. The $10 million emergency project is part of Governor Newsom's executive order dealing with the drought. Jacob McQuirk, a principal engineer with the State Department of Water Resources explains to the California Reports' Keith Mizuguchi how it all works. Every tidal cycle, every tidal rise, you get saltier water pushing in from the ocean. And what happens is through either the natural melt of the snow or precipitation or the release of stored water, we're able to push the, the salts out. And so there's this push and pull of the ocean pushing the salt in and the fresh water pushing it out. And really, we need to have enough fresh water to push it out. But specifically, this West False River Channel, it allows great conveyance from the San Joaquin River on that flood tide, pushing into the flooded Franks Track Island. And what that does is on every tidal cycle, 
um, you're basically further injecting the salt deeper into the interior delta. So by blocking off that channel, what we're doing is we're changing the way in which water fills into Frank's track. Um, and so now we're getting water that comes into the north from Old River. And so you're also getting more water that's coming from the McCallamy and Georgiana Slough and the Delta Cross Canal, fresher Sacramento water. And that it now goes into uh, Frank's track. So by changing that plumbing and changing that dynamics, what we're able to do is we're able to preserve the salinity in the interior delta. Why is it important to keep the salty water from the Pacific Ocean and San Francisco Bay away from this area? As the salinity increases, key constituents in the water also increase. One that's a big concern is bromide. And so as the bromide increases and you disinfect that water, it creates disinfection byproducts. These disinfection byproducts are, are toxic, um, they're a problem. And at some point, you know, if the concentrations are too high, uh, the water that you're pulling out of the delta is no longer usable, you can't blend it, and it's no longer a water supply source. Looking at the bigger picture, what does this rock barrier mean for fighting the drought this year in California? Through these actions, we're able to conserve water in our upstream reservoirs, as well as through uh, California uh, being more mindful of their water use. So it does play a very important role in the bigger picture because specifically uh, without these actions, we'd utilize too much water. And so we'd, we'd see our reservoirs dropping too fast and we just would not be confident in when those would refill. And so this does play a very important role in that because it's one of the best ways we know of, uh, maybe only second to conservation, to be able to save some of that water so that we can use it later in the season. Jacob McQuirk is a principal engineer for the State Department of Water Resources. Jacob, thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome, Keith. Have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And Blue Shield of California, closing the health care gap since 1939. Learn more about their commitment to quality and fair health care for every Californian at news.blueshieldca.com. Let's turn to the pandemic. When students and teachers return to classrooms in California in the fall, they'll be required to wear masks indoors. The decision by state public health officials represents a far more cautious approach than new guidance from the CDC. Its guidance allows for students and teachers who are vaccinated to go without a mask indoors. California's Health and Human Services Secretary, Dr. Mark Galley, explained the state's decision to ABC 10 TV in Sacramento. With the level of uncertainty and frankly, um, our work in progress on getting young people vaccinated, starting the fall with all kids masking, plus emphasizing the need to do good ventilation in our schools, as well as having testing available, um, I think is going to be California's way to go. 
And Dr. Galley says that because they're leaving the indoor mask mandate in place and many schools may have an issue with spacing, schools will not be required to have physical distancing in their classrooms. The California Department of Education is expected to provide more details about guidelines for schools in the fall later today. And that is the California Report for Monday, July 12th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, have a great day. This is National Native News. I'm Megan Kamrick and for Antonia Gonzalez. Canada's largest indigenous organization, the Assembly of First Nations, has a new national chief. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, Roseanne Archibald becomes the first woman ever to lead the organization. Newly elected Roseanne Archibald says she will make the Assembly of First Nations more inclusive and transparent. She took the oath of office as national chief, surrounded by friends and family in her home community of Tequatagamu Nation in northeastern Ontario. Here's some of what she said. I plan to work with all of the regions across Canada, all of the regional chiefs and sub-regions, to build a post-pandemic recovery plan for First Nations, for their health and well-being, for their social issues, mental health, addictions, and for their economies. Archibald also says she will pressure governments to make sure the needs and priorities of First Nations are a part of national discussions and actions. She also says she will make changes to the way the AFN is run, adding that she will create space that is respectful and kind to other leaders and at the same time hold them to account. Over the next 100 days, Archibald says she will focus on key issues such as the unmarked burial sites at former residential schools, the National Action Plan on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and she also wants to address the effects of climate change on Indigenous communities. She won the top job after two days and five full rounds of voting. She says as the first woman to hold the office, it's been a long and bumpy road to get there. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. American Indians and Alaska Natives have the highest rate of vaccination against COVID-19 in the country. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's COVID-19 data tracker. NOVA on PBS reports the tracker shows 45.5% of this group received at least one dose and 39% are fully vaccinated. One reason for the high vaccination rate is that many tribes and urban indigenous communities opted to receive vaccines through the Indian Health Service rather than the states. This allowed them to set their own priorities in the rollout rather than follow CDC guidelines. However, full outpatient care under IHS, while common in the West, is not readily available in the eastern U.S., that affected many urban vaccination campaigns. One group, Native American Lifelines, sought out partnerships with the Massachusetts Department of Public Health and the University of Maryland, Baltimore, to establish IHS vaccine clinics. NOVA reports the success of the vaccination efforts offers a counter-narrative to long-standing assumptions about vaccine hesitancy in indigenous communities, Also, a survey by the Urban Indian Health Institute earlier this year found 74 percent of Native Americans surveyed said they were willing to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Native American Lifeline's Executive Director Carrie Hawk Lessard says the message throughout Indian country is be a good relative. Do this to protect elders and the culture. We already lost a lot, she says. We can't afford to lose more. Some U.S. national parks have begun integrating indigenous astronomy into their astro-tourism programs. Outside Magazine reports rangers with National Parks Mesa Verde in Colorado and Voyageurs in Minnesota are partnering with local indigenous communities to offer platforms where they can share their knowledge of the stars. The parks are among the newest certified by the International Dark Sky Association. Native American tribes have studied the stars for a millennia, but according to Outside, that knowledge has only gained momentum recently in modern science. The 
National Park rangers were inspired by Annette S. Lee, an astrophysicist and artist with the Ojibwe and Dakota Lakota communities. She's the director of Native Sky Watchers. Based in Minnesota, it's an effort to gather and revitalize Native astronomy and Earth knowledge. Mesa Verde is kicking off a mobile story lab later this year that will collaborate with nearby communities, including indigenous educators and students. The plan is to produce things like a Pueblo star map that can be used to educate park visitors. For National Native News, I'm Megan Kamrick. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. A fire in the Birchville and Sweetland Roads area of North San Juan is now entirely contained after burning two acres, according to Cal Fire spokesperson Mary Eldridge. Ninety-one people had lost power due to a power line collapse in the same area, affecting PG&E customers. A bulldozer knocked over a tree, damaging an adjacent power pole. It is still unclear as to whether the power line failure caused the fire, reports the union. Power has since been restored to all but two individuals. No injuries or structural damage was caused by the blaze, and no evacuations have been ordered in North San Juan. California's electricity grid operator has issued another flex alert from 4 to 9 p.m. today. Despite the cooling temperatures, Oregon's bootleg fire continues to threaten the possibility of blackouts. The Sacramento Bee reports that on Saturday, the fire tripped interstate transmission lines, cutting off California's access to thousands of megawatts of imported power, enough to power more than 2.6 million homes. The bootleg fire, burning east of Upper Klamath Lake, was last reported at over 150,000 acres with no containment. Northern California is currently battling three major wildfires. The largest, outpacing the Lava Fire, is now the Beckworth Complex Fire, burning 45 miles north of Lake Tahoe in Plumas County. The Sacramento Bee reports the fire experienced extreme growth over the weekend, covering 130 square miles, more than tripling in size. On Saturday, July 10th, Grass Valley, Nevada City Fire Department deployed California Office of Emergency Services Engine 4104 to the Beckworth Complex Fire, as reported by Ubinet. This morning at the Nevada City Rood Center, Jesse Wilson was sworn in as Nevada County's new district attorney. I, Jesse Wilson, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of California against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of California, that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties upon which I am about to enter.
Following the ceremony, Wilson went on to deliver an impromptu thank you speech. I wasn't prepared for the speech part of this, but um, I just want to thank everyone that came out today to support and other people that are support, supporting from afar. Um, it's been a long process. It's an exciting process, um, some, sometimes overwhelming, but regardless, I look forward to um, dutifully uh, serving the county and all of its constituents. And again, thank you all. Wilson, formerly an El Dorado County Deputy District Attorney, succeeds 15-year District Attorney Cliff Newell, who stepped down with over a year of his term still remaining. Wilson narrowly beat out Calusa County District Attorney Matthew Beauchamp for the interim position. He will need to run for re-election next year when the interim term is up. A new study released today by the California Air Resources Board highlights the extensive reach of toxic air pollution from wildfires. The board reported unhealthy levels of particulate matter, zinc, lead, and other dangerous chemicals could be detected 150 miles away from the 2018 campfire site. And now for regional weather. An excessive heat warning from the National Weather Service remains in effect for most of our listening area until 9 this evening. In Grass Valley in Nevada City, tonight, mostly clear skies with a low around 67. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 94. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 57, tomorrow, sunny, with a high near 88. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, mostly clear skies with a low around 59, tomorrow, sunny, with a high near 92. Next, we take our bi-weekly walk in the park with Sid Brown. Sid Brown sits on the board of the Sierra Gold Park Foundation and joins us every other week with news and updates from Nevada County's three state parks. Well, on our minds this week, post-4th of July, of course, is the, the impact of all our lovely visitors to our area, um, the impact that they left. Sad truth is there's a lot of garbage and materials left behind from people enjoying their out-of-door experience. So I do want to request that when you come to your parks, not just the river, but any of the state parks, don't use disposables for your food items to start with is a good way to start. Please take home all that you bring. Please leave no trash, leave no trace. Fire restrictions are in effect throughout the region, as you know. The latest specifics on that is at Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park in the campground. There is now no longer allowed any charcoal or wood fires. That is a hard closure, a brand new superintendent order due to the wildfire concerns and danger. I would add that propane cook stoves are all right in the campground. And while we're talking about food and barbecuing, this is truly a time of heightened activity of the black bears in our region. And black bears are at all three parks, as well as in the neighborhoods around Grass Valley and Nevada City. So please be mindful of your food waste, your food scraps, your cars. If you leave food inside your car, best to keep it in the trunk of your car, not on the seat where it is seen, and secure your food into bear-proof canisters. 
parking, as was concerned uh, and, and predicted, was a huge problem over the 4th of July. I saw a pretty stunning little video clip posted on Ubinet last week showing the stream of cars parked along the unpaved one-lane Purden Road. If a fire truck or emergency vehicle had to get down there, there was no way. So please, people, if there's not a place where cars can bypass, don't park there. Let's try to keep the roadways and the emergency accesses open. At South Yuba River State Parks, there is great progress being made on the Bridgeport Bridge restoration. One of the parking lots down there is still closed due to the construction activities. We look forward to opening up that parking lot and getting more capacity at the river. We are having gold panning demonstrations every Saturday and Sunday at Bridgeport from 12 until 2, and that's every weekend through Labor Day. At Malakoff Diggins, the um, historic buildings are still not yet open to the public, but our curatorial staff is working diligently to get them prepared to welcome our guests back inside to both the museum and the historic buildings. But in the meantime, you can take a self-guided tour, soak up the atmosphere at North Bloomfield. I always try to remember to remind people, if you want to go to Malakoff Diggins, to please drive Highway 49 to Tyler Foot Road. Take a right-hand turn on Tyler Foot Road before you get to North San Juan and follow, keep turning left, follow the signs to Malakoff Diggins State Park. If you go that way, it's paved all the way. If you go on North Bloomfield out of Nevada City, you have about eight miles of very rough, unpaved gravel washboard road that your car and your tires may not appreciate. Please remember, um, no glass, no fires, uh, no charcoal, no briquettes. Um, I hate to say all these negative things, but they're good reminders to keep our parks clean and welcoming for all. At Empire Mine State Historic Park, when the temperature is less than 90 degrees or less predicted to be less than 90 degrees, which is probably not this week, the blacksmiths are out demonstrating their craft. And on weekends, at least, we do have roving interpreters in the garden and in the mine yard areas. The State Historic Park Empire Mine hours are from 10 until 5, and that's for the historic core area. So look forward to giving you more information next time. We're going to be talking about the classification of state parks. We're going to be talking about specific information about history as well as natural history and the cultural connections that this community has with its state park system. All right. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next time. You can listen to an extended version of A Walk in the Park on our webpage, kvmr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can't get enough of Sid or our state parks? No one blames you. Learn more at sierragoldparksfoundation.org. That's our newscast for tonight, Monday, July 12, 2021. We get support from Scene Skincare, offering organic, farm-to-face skincare and aesthetic services. 
Utilizing an apothecary back bar of skincare products curated on-site from local, organically grown ingredients. Open by appointment only, including weekends. S-E-E-N skincare.com And Sun's Development and the Alternative Building Center. Offering environmentally considerate building design and materials since 1999. Supplying recycled cotton insulation, local clay plasters, hemp shield exterior wood finishes, and other bio-based products. Idaho Maryland Road, Grass Valley, sunsdevelopment.com. Stick around. Coming up next at 6.30, Wings, the Women's International News Gathering Service. On today's show, Operation Varsity Blues focusing on the 2019 college admittance scandal garnered outrage and front page headlines. However, in this 1995 speech to the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco, civil rights theorist and Harvard Law professor Lonnie Guineer outlines traditional ways admission systems and employment perpetuate class privilege through means that are entirely legal. Then, at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.